Hey, we want to, we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to, we're going to just kind of do a question and answer. Brandon's answered a whole lot of questions on heaven in this series over the last three sermons. And you can talk. Wow, this, we're, we're going to be out of here quick if he doesn't say something. Uh, it's like a pen and teller thing. Uh, I, uh, so I have the, the leadership team has put some questions together, and I'm going to pepper him with them. Y'all have the advantage, since we had so many child dedications, of all the softball questions are going away. Nothing but fastballs, okay? Wow. Okay. Hey, we actually have 21 minutes in last service. We only had 20. So. Oh, is that? Is that? Yeah. Oh. I'm just, that's what they tell me in the back. You know, okay. The little cheat screen we have yeah. that has all my answers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't give away our secrets. Okay, question number one. Can people in heaven look down and see us down here on earth? Can people look down and see us? Um, oh, yeah. Well, I think that obviously we love the idea of people looking down and seeing us. Uh, we love the idea of feeling like somehow those who have gone on before us are with us in some way. Um, the trouble with that is that there's really no biblical evidence of that. Um, I think a lot of people uh, do kind of gravitate to one particular scripture, and uh, that's in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, matter of fact, I'll read it to you. Um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it simply just says, um, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And really the idea is that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The struggle with that and just taking it for that alone is that Hebrews chapter 11 kind of gives you a setup. And the setup in Hebrews chapter 11 is, is that there are many, many people uh, who were people of faith, uh, people that you could emulate, people like Rahab and Moses and Noah and just those people of the faith, David, all those people that we aspire to eventually look like. Those are the people in Hebrews 11. And the thing about Hebrews 11, it's there so that we see their struggles and we see how they handle it and that we as Christians could emulate this great cloud of witnesses. It's almost like you have this book of people who did it right and you and I look to their examples as they are a great cloud of witnesses for us. And so they are our testimony. They are a part of our strength. Obviously, we have God's word, but we look to them for what? The hope. We look to them for evidence of how to handle things. And in that case, uh, there's really no strong biblical evidence that people would look down on us. There's nothing else in the Bible that would really suggest it. Um, matter of fact, um, you start you know, kind of looking at, at different things, and if you, if you just think of it like this, if they could in fact look on us, and there is no more sin in heaven, there is no mourning, or there is no more sadness, or any of those things, then why is it that they would want to look on us? Now, there are other people who would say that maybe they do have a window seat in heaven, and maybe there are certain things in heaven that they're able to see. Really, it's just speculation. There's no way that you could come to a concrete evidence and say right or wrong, one way or the other, although when in doubt, just look to the Scriptures and see what does the Word say. And really, there's just not much that suggests that they would look down on us. And so there are some of you that you're a little bit bummed out on that. You're like, 
really? You know? But let me just ask you this. What's greater? That the God who created you, that he looks on you and he says, I'll never leave nor forsake you. That he says, cast all your cares upon me when you're weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. What's the greatest comfort? That those people who have gone on before us are watching after you? Or God, the very one who created you, said, I will always watch after you. To me, that's where you've got to draw comfort from. Do we receive mansions in heaven? King James says mansions. The other translations say rooms or dwelling places. Yeah, the King James does say mansions. And uh, if for any of you guys in here in the King that love the King James, um, then you probably are looking for this incredible uh, splash pad in heaven. You know, like the pool in the back, and like you're going to kick up your feet. And uh, for all you ladies here, uh, you're thinking chocolate fountain kind of right here uh, as you sit at your humble abode. Uh, the problem is, is really, um, if, if you start looking at it just in terms of the culture and the Jewish culture, and really if you look at the word in the Greek, uh, it comes out of John chapter 14. You remember Jesus says to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Put your trust in God, your trust also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many. And then there's the word, mansions, or really in the Greek, the best word is rooms. And if you look at the Jewish idea, there's really nothing in the Jewish culture that would ever specify or even to the disciples that they were going to get a mansion in heaven. Uh, matter of fact, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, what you see there is there's really no mention of a room or even a mansion there. I mean, really, you just see that we're in heaven, that heaven is our home. I think Paige made that very clear, uh, that heaven is what we long for. And we don't long for heaven because there's a mansion there that's better than any house you've ever owned on earth, okay? Like, that's not the goal. The goal is, is that you're called home to what, Christ and to the Father, and you get to live with Him and abide in Him and be uh, everything you need. And so I don't think that if you look at the word in the Greek, rooms, I don't think you're going to have this incredible mansion there. I could be wrong. I hope I am, actually. Uh, but I don't think so. Really, in the Jewish culture, if you know anything about it, you remember the Take a Vow series, a son goes away and he prepares a house for his bride. Well, typically what they do is they tack on to the father's house. And so the father has a house, and then what they do is they add a room. And so it's almost as if there's one specific place, it's kind of the living room, so to say, that people come and dine and they gather and they celebrate and they have all those things. And then there's a room on the attached house for them. And so that's kind of the idea in the Jewish culture. And I think that's going to be a similar idea in heaven. Although, again, we can't really prove it. We just know that it's probably not going to be a mansion. And so for all of you looking forward to it, you think heaven is going to be awesome because of the mansion I have. Uh, I would think that it's going to be awesome for a lot of other reasons besides that, okay? What does the Bible say about purgatory? I'm like, golly, Nothing dude. but fastballs, man. <laughs> what does the Bible say about purgatory? Actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory. Uh, it really doesn't say anything about a place. And uh, if you grew up uh, in the Catholic Church, then you grew up with the idea and understanding of purgatory. If you didn't grow up in the Catholic faith, maybe you grew up, you were Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, you're like, I have no idea what purgatory is. And you've never really been able to wrap your head around it at all. Uh, but purgatory really is the idea is that there is a, an intermediate place uh, before heaven and hell. It's almost like a waiting room in a sense. And the waiting room is there uh, as the purpose for the purpose of being purged of your sins. And so maybe there was something that you didn't repent of, or maybe there was something that you uh, still lacked in terms of purity. And so that would be a place 
before coming uh, before God that you would have some sins remissed and, and penance paid. And ultimately, not only are you there, but people behind you are praying on your behalf. And they're, they're pleading on your behalf, praying for you, hoping to move you out of the intermediate purgatory state into heaven, or in some cases, maybe hell, depending on how bad you really were. Uh, and you may wonder, like, where did, they, where did that even come from at all? And really, it came before Jesus. It came from uh, the family of the Maccabees. And the Maccabees were a part of the clan that rose up against, if you remember, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, back about 170 A.D., before Christ uh, was even ever on the scene. But they wrote several books. First and Second Maccabees are in this uh, book called the Apocrypha, which... When it went through the canonization process uh, after Christ and after the early church began, they removed the Apocrypha. And the reason why is because the, the idea of purgatory doesn't necessarily go with the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. What does he say? To, to depart from the bodies to be at home with the Lord, to be present with the Lord. And so it, Paul is either right or the Maccabees are right, and you have to kind of decide which is it. Is there indeed a purgatory in which you wait, or is Paul right? And he says, hey, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. We teach, and we believe wholeheartedly, and for multiple reasons. I think Luke chapter 16, the dialogue between the young ruler, or the ruler and Lazarus, you see that in Luke 16. Luke 23, what did Jesus say to, to the thief on the cross? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He gave no inclination at all that he would have some other intermediate state that he was waiting in uh, before he was purged of his sins. The bottom line is this. The scriptures very clearly teach that the only thing that purges anyone of their sin is not what happens in the afterlife, but what happens in this life and what happens with what you do with Jesus Christ. He has either forgiven you and his blood sacrifices atone for your sin, and for that reason you are approved before the Father, or you've denied Christ, you've denied the work of the cross and his atoning sacrifice for you, and therefore you would be judged accordingly. But the bottom line is you have to decide in this life, will I follow Jesus or will I not? And if you do, then you're on God's team. And if you don't, ultimately, then you are one day going to be cast from his presence. Eric Clapton said there would be no tears in heaven. What does the Bible say? Can I poll the audience? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Ask them. Okay, so here we go. Will there be tears in heaven? Okay. If you would say no, then raise your hand. No tears in heaven. Okay. Okay. If you would say yes, there's going to be tears in heaven. Oh, okay. Losers. <laughs> I don't know. I just won't raise my hand at all. Like, at least go with the crowd. You know what I'm like? Yeah, raise your hand. Um, no, really, uh, what do you do with the fact that Jesus will wipe away your tears? So obviously there's tears in heaven if they're going to wipe away, right? Hmm. Tears of joy. Well, it really depends. The bottom line is as you go into eternity, there is no more crying or you know, there is no more mourning. There is no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so will you have tears throughout the eternity? No, I don't think so. I will long to see what it looks like as Jesus actually, I believe, uh, will hold you in a sense and wipe away the tears from your eyes. Meaning, I think he takes away the old order of things. And I don't know what, exactly what that looks like. If he takes away, uh, as Isaiah says, as Revelation 21 says, that, that you'll remember those things no more. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. But the idea is eternity is so awesome because there is no more pain or <laughs> gloom or sorrow or 
crying for all of that's passed away. And so that's what's so awesome about heaven is that no, really, truly, I don't think there's, there's tears there after the fact that he wipes them away. How can heaven be perfect if all of our loved ones are not there with us? Yeah, like what, what are we going to do if we get there and Uncle Cletus and Uncle Clyde aren't there? You know what I mean? And um, really, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And Thank you. The psalm really gives you a, an idea of, of the Lord and that the Lord is perfect and heaven is perfect. And I think oftentimes we, we wonder, is heaven going to be less of what we really hoped for if there are people who aren't there with us. And although I don't think we know exactly what that looks like, here's what we do know. We know that right now, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, that what we see is what but a mere reflection and a mirror, that one day we're going to see God face to face. And when we see God face to face and we have an eternity to know and abide in Him and to grow in Him and to learn all about His character, about His perfection, about His glory, I really don't think that there's going to be anyone that we miss. That there's going to, I don't think we're going to get there and be bummed because there, there's not someone there that we expected. Uh, I don't think that in that moment we're going to mourn or even cry over that. I think uh, we are going to have everything that we want. All of our fulfillment is met. All of our cravings, all of our desires are fully anticipated and fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the glory and the splendor of God where Revelation says there is no more sun. Why? Because God and Jesus Christ radiate all we need. And so I don't think that heaven's going to be less perfect because someone's not there. But if you would say, well, that's really a struggle for me, and you even question God in that area, then let me ask you this question. It's a pretty bold one. If you believe that heaven's going to be less perfect because of someone who's not there, what are you doing now to reach them for the cause of Christ? How many conversations have you had with them about heaven and about eternal things? Because ultimately, oftentimes, we throw that back on God and we say, God, how would you allow this? And yet we never, ever have a conversation about it here. And so that's why we are commanded, as Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what? To go, therefore, all the nations. And we are to tell them about the gospel story. And so what role are you playing in that? Put it back on us a little bit. Just for the record, I did have an Uncle Clyde, but not an Uncle Cletus. There you go. Hey, there's somebody here that has an Uncle Somebody's Cletus, right? Cletus, Come on. No Uncle Cletus? Okay, moving on. Do the souls of young children and babies go to heaven? Do the souls of young babies uh, go to heaven? Well, there's a large debate, I think, um, about much of this. I think there's a lot of people that wonder... Um, is there an age of accountability? That's a question that's oftentimes posed. And in the Jewish culture, a man actually uh, is made at the age of 13. And so a lot of people speculate that maybe age, the age of 13 is kind of the accountability point. Um, there are others believe that based off of the Exodus story and uh, Israel going out from Egypt into the promised land, there, that maybe it's the age of 20. Really, the Bible's not very clear on an age of accountability. There's nothing that's so concrete that we could base it off of that. And so I believe wholeheartedly that if you are at the point where you can understand God's great sacrifice, that you can understand uh, this, this process is a word called imputation, imputing. 
If, if you understand that God was righteous on your behalf and he took on sin so that you could become righteous, he gave his son so that you could experience life and freedom from your sins, then you're accountable. If that's the age of 10, if that's the age of 11, then to me, you're accountable for that choice. You have to decide at some point to deny your life and to follow Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what age that's put in terms which you can understand and follow. But ultimately, I think we're also asking, like, what about infants that were born? What about babies that maybe were aborted? Maybe um, in our family, uh, we had, uh, I have a brother that they lost two children, one that was 10 days old and one that was three years old. And so I wonder, you know, Marcus and Macy, are they there? I really don't even wonder about that. I, I believe wholeheartedly Jesus had a very, very, very tender heart towards children. Uh, he gave great regard and even warning to the Pharisees about not causing them to stumble. Uh, I think, though, the, one of the best pictures of this is uh, found in 2 Samuel. And you see this story of David. You remember David and Bathsheba and their sin? And they had a, uh, a baby boy. And this boy died on the seventh day. And um, I'll try to find it real quick because I think it would be better for me to read it than just to, to tell you. But basically, on the seventh day, the, the son dies. And there's a lot of conversation that begins to go on between David and his servants, because his servants are a little bit confused by his behavior. And uh, the reason why is because <clears throat> while this child is alive, he is mourning and he is fasting and he is praying and he is pleading on behalf of his son. And literally he is praying. And then as soon as he finds out that his son has died, he gets up, he puts lotions on, um, he goes, he cleans himself up, he goes to the palace, uh, he worships the Lord, and then he dines and has food, and the servants bring food. And they ask the question, how is it that you're responding this way? Because they're very confused at his response and really the way that he's handled everything. And uh, this is what it said. Um, his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And he says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And he basically just said, when, I, when the child was alive, I was praying that God would spare us and that he would have mercy on us for the reason we're here. And he said, but when he died, he said, there's nothing that I could do to bring him back. And if I can't bring him back, then the greatest hope is that I will be able to go to him again. And so I believe wholeheartedly that even King David believed that he would see his seven-day-old son again and that he would get to know him uh, when he was in heaven. And so, yes, I wholeheartedly believe, although there are some that might contest that, yes, infants, babies, people who have not had the ability to reason or be accountable, whether it is because of challenge they had physically or mentally, um, that they are in heaven and that they are safe and sound. And the greatest part is, is they have absolutely no constraints anymore. And that's the glorious thing about who God is. Our books, such as 90 Minutes in Heaven, Heaven is for Real, and 23 Minutes in Hell, Biblically Sound. Yeah, that's kind of skipped around. Yeah, that's cool. Um, are these books... Um, 
are they something that we should deem as credible? Um, I'm, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here, okay? And so uh, there's going to be some of you that you disagree with me, but here's the great thing, okay, about being a, a Christian is that there are some essentials in life that we need to believe in. What are they? That Jesus Christ died for us, that in our humanity we're sinful people. And so those are essentials, that Christ died for us, that he was perfect, all the things. This right here is a non-essential, okay? Like ultimately what you believe about this does not change who we are. We can still be friends and we may not agree on this, okay? Uh, and so we can still hang out. We can still go to the same church. There's no reason for one of us to get storm, stormy mad today and leave and go, I'm not coming back because I don't like the way he answered that question. Um, but I'll try to answer it with grace and I'll try to answer it in a way that maybe provides you some insight or some just forethought about the scriptures, because ultimately that's what you got to come back to, okay? Uh, the reason that I struggle to um, regard these books, one, is because they sell so many copies, okay? Um, and so you're like, oh, you're just jealous because you didn't write that book, okay? Um, and no, that, that's really not my take. I think it's very scary that so many of us as Christians, literally millions and millions and millions of these copies have sold and uh, whether it be, um, you know, the Todd Burpo and, and uh, his son that wrote Heaven is for Real or um, some of the other ones, uh, we oftentimes want to know more about heaven. The struggle that I have is that the Bible contains so much about heaven. And ultimately, if there is a book that you read, then it needs to be able to correspond and it needs to not contradict what, there, what you do have in the Bible. And so that's kind of my struggle with a handful of those books. But I also think about this. Jesus rose from the dead, right? You all agree with that on the third day? Uh, it even says in Matthew chapter 27 that there were other people that were resurrected. The struggle is like Jesus came back and he had 40 days uh, with his disciples and other people. He appeared over uh, 500 different witnesses. And never once do we have an account of what he saw or did in heaven, right? Right? Uh, Think about this. Lazarus, he was dead for, for three or four days. Jesus resurrected him. And why did, Jesus, why did Jesus not allow Lazarus to give us an account of what he saw during those three or four days? The same, uh, Paul raised a guy named Eutychus. You don't get any story that he had about the heavenly realms. Um, Peter raised a guy named Dorcas. You don't have uh, anything there. You have... Um, Jairus, his daughter, raised from the dead. You have no account there. Who do we have accounts from? We have accounts from people like Isaiah. We have accounts from people like John. We have uh, accounts from a little bit about Paul, uh, but even he had a very mild thing and couldn't even really give us anything about it to any degree. You have Ezekiel that wrote a little bit about it. Uh, and all those wrote as if they had visions from the Lord, but none of them revolved around a near-death experience. And so as you look at that, you just go... Okay, what do I take and how do I heed you know, those different things? And ultimately, I choose to say I don't think that those books are something that you need to put a lot of stock in. And bottom line is you just need to simply what? Guard your heart against such things. I think John uh, chapter uh, 118, when John says no one has seen God at any time, is a very strong evidence that, hey, it means that there's not coming and going. Um, and then the other one, John 3.13, says no one has ever ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, and that's the Son of Man. And so it's a period, the, the idea that nobody's coming back and forth to tell us these things. Uh, even you have strong evidence in that in John chapter 16, in the story where the rich man wanted to come back and tell all the people about the warning, about that, that hell indeed is real, and he was denied the opportunity. Why? Because you have to make that decision in life. And so 
I think you just have to be very careful, be very wise about that. I'll tell you a couple of struggles that I had in the book, Heaven is for Real, uh, one of which uh, the young boy saw uh, the horse that Jesus rode on, and it was a multicolored horse looking like a rainbow bow. Well, in Revelation, we know that the, Jesus, the horse that Jesus rides is what? White, okay? Um, another thing is he said that, that uh, Gabriel sat at the left hand of the Father in the book. Well, what we know is nothing about Gabriel sitting at the left hand. We know that Jesus sits at the right hand. We don't know anything. There's no biblical context that Gabriel sits at the left hand of the Father. Another thing that he writes, uh, which is in the pages in the 70s, I believe, is he talks about that everyone in heaven had wings. And that would imply that all of us, what, become angels or we become some sort of heavenly being. Uh, there's just no record that we would have wings. Now, uh, is it possible in our glorified body? Maybe, but why hasn't the Bible told us such things? And so I would just say that as you long to know more about heaven, make sure, make sure that what you read, although it may be a fantastic read, and although it may be very appealing, just make sure that it lines up with the Word of God. Okay, so be careful that you know and understand, and then even better yet, it may be a fantastic read. You may even believe you know what Jesus looks like, and that's phenomenal, okay? Just be careful. That's all I can say. Be careful, okay? One more? One more. Let's do an easy one, like, hey, will we be naked in heaven? (laughs) Let's finish with that. Like, can we not finish with that? Yes. And the answer is, Lord, I hope not. And, like, here's the only reason I say that. Like, if we're naked in heaven, okay, we'll end with this, okay? Uh, Do you realize how horrific that will be to see some of you guys naked? You know, like, I look across and I see all the big burly men that come to Stone Point, and I'm like, Lord, please let him have clothes on, you know? And then you read Revelation 21, right? And you have to be convinced by there is no more crying or pain for the old order. And, like, I can't think of seeing somebody naked and not crying or having pain. And so absolutely no, you will not be naked in heaven, okay? Uh, even in Matthew, you see a dialogue. You see one of the angels uh, that's clothed in Revelation 6 and 7. Uh, you see that the saints are clothed. In Revelation 19, we're going to be dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And so uh, everything that you would read in Revelation and other places in the Bible would indeed show that we're going to be clothed in righteousness and splendor. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but praise God, we are not naked. Right. Okay? And can we end on that one? Perfect. Awesome. Uh, Moms, we love you. And this actually concludes the Heaven series. If you have more questions that have not been answered, uh, please stick around. Ask one of our other uh, staff. They would love to help you with anything uh, that you have. Uh, also, don't forget to go online because we have the last three weeks of the Heaven series in which we've probably answered literally 40 or 50 questions intentionally throughout those weeks. And so I encourage you to go back. If you haven't seen those, listen to them. If you're a first-time guest, we do not normally do Q&As, but we pray that it was a blessing to you uh, anyway. And so we hope that you have a fantastic weekend. Let's pray, and then we're going to let you guys be dismissed. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you give us a lot of evidence about heaven. And Father, ultimately, there are many things that we don't know. There are many things that some of us would not even agree upon. But Lord, the bottom line is, is that we do know that heaven is a real place and that there is a real king there. And one day we will inhabit that place with our Savior. 
Father, I pray that for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would long for that day, that, Lord, that we would be transformed even now, that our minds and our bodies would be renewed every day, that, Lord, we would be Christ-like, that we would edify the church and, most of all, edify you and our lifestyles as we prepare to be able to worship you for all of eternity, to be able to live with you, to know more about you. And, Lord, I think we all would agree and long for the day that no longer do we see a mere reflection of who you are, but we see you face to face. Lord, for others that are here, I pray, God, that today the story that Paige shared would resonate on their hearts and their minds. And, Lord, that you would show them that their greatest need in this world is not more stuff, it's not bigger houses, it's not better jobs, but it's Jesus Christ. And I pray today that if you speak to their heart, that this would be the day in which they put their faith and their trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you also for moms. We thank you for the blessing that they have been to so many. And uh, Lord, I'm thankful that for my mom, even today in a day which she's not able to join us, that Lord, you have used her in many moments of my life. Times where I messed up a recipe, um, times where I needed um, some uh, advice, even times as I raise my own children where I heed her example. Lord, I thank you for her, and I thank you for the testimony that she's been and showing me more about Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you would bless her, and I pray that you would bless every mom here today. In Jesus' name, amen.